every happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White, joined as always by my brother David for another trip through history. David's got a story he's going to tell us about, a time and place in history. David, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. Hard to believe it's a new month already. We're into November. Time flies, but I'll tell you, it flies even more when you're jumping around through history, doesn't it, David? Seems like we're on another month every week, Neil. All right. Well, as long as we are flying through time, I guess we should get to the podcast. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's November 11th, 1936, and William Lyon Mackenzie King, Prime Minister of Canada, is walking through the House of Commons and greeting every First World War veteran who in uniform there when he notices... On the chest of one of the janitors, something he did not expect to see, the Victoria Cross. Wow. Okay. So for our followers from the U.S. or outside of the British Empire, the Victoria Cross is actually the British Empire's highest award for valor in combat. So so I can understand why the Prime Minister would be a little confused to see it on a janitor. What's the backstory here, David? Well, as it turns out, this particular janitor is named Philip Conowall. Philip Conowall. So it's 1936. He must have earned this Victoria Cross earlier than that. Was it in the First World War, the Boer War, Crimean War? It was in the First World War that he won the Victoria Cross. He actually had quite an extensive career as a private soldier in the First World War. He was actually born in the Ukraine, well, what in the modern day is the Ukraine. At the time, he was actually a subject of the Russian Empire, and that's where he first joined the army. He joined the Russian army, served in it for a few years, became a hand-to-hand combat instructor, and then decided to leave, become a lumberjack, and then move to Canada for our nation's great lumberjacking opportunities. Well, if there's one thing that Canada does have, it's great lumberjacking opportunities. I suppose it was a bit of a natural fit to go from soldiering to lumberjacking? Who knows? But he wasn't a lumberjack for very long because he moved to Canada in 1913. And in 1915, he joined the Canadian Army. As you may know, there was a war going on in Europe at this point, the First World War, and Philip Conowall was joining up to fight for his brand new country. Well, that's good of him to volunteer just two years after moving to Canada to fight in the Canadian Army. And there's another little twist on that, because he was Ukrainian, and he was actually born on a little village close to what was then the border between the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Because he was from the Russian Empire, he was free to volunteer to join the Canadian Army anytime he wanted, as he chose to do. But had he been just born just a few miles away, and otherwise exactly the same, 
he probably would have been interned in Canada as an enemy alien because the Canadian government made no distinction between members of the Austro-Hungarian Empire who might feel loyalty specifically to that crown and the Ukrainians, an ethnic group that were at that time ruled over by different powers who they felt very little loyalty to. Right, so he would have been rounded up in the internment just because he was from the Austrian-Hungarian Empire if he'd been born just a little bit down the road, uh, even though as a Ukrainian, he was actually didn't feel any loyalty to that empire. Exactly. And so much so that he joined the Canadian army to actually fight against Austria-Hungary. Exactly. And that brought him to the fields of Europe as a soldier with extensive experience at this point, extensive training at least from his Russian army experience. And his early army records are sparse but uniformly positive. He fought at a number of the significant battles of the Canadian Corps in the First World War. Member of the 47th Battalion, he fought in battles like the Somme and at Vimy Ridge. So he fought at the Somme at Vimy Ridge. Would he have fought in the craters that we talked about in episode number 12, the army lost in the craters? Well, that was in 1915 when he was just joining up, so he probably wouldn't have arrived in France early enough for that battle. Still an interesting story you can listen to if you want to go back and listen to episode 12 of Oh Brother, When Art Thou? A very fascinating story about the Canadian army in the First World War. Okay, David, so back to Philip Conowal. What happened after these battles that he fought in? Well, the next battle for the Canadian army after Vimy Ridge was going to be very much the same. The same as Vimy Ridge. The commander of the Canadian Corps, Julian Bing, had been promoted away. He was actually a British officer, promoted up to command a British army. But the new commander of the Canadian Corps, Arthur Curry, its first Canadian commander, viewed Vimy Ridge as a remarkable success, which he'd been deeply involved with, and wanted to continue that, to fight a battle that could replicate that success. Right, so Curry sees that the Canadians have come up with a winning strategy because they won Vimy Ridge, and he wants to keep using that strategy. Makes sense to me. So at roughly the same time as Curry is taking command, his commanders, the British Army, tell him his new strategic objective is to seize the town of Lens. It's a small French mining community which had been, unfortunately, on the front line for essentially all of the First World War. And by this point in 1917, it was shattered. The civilian population had long fled, but it was still a significant obstacle to any troops trying to advance because all of the buildings, even if they'd been destroyed by artillery fire, the rubble that they left behind would be a very difficult terrain for troops to operate in. Now, attacking a town seems different to me, David, from attacking a ridge like Vimy Ridge. Was this the kind of situation where the strategy that the Canadians had employed at Vimy Ridge could be successful again? Well, that was the question on everybody's minds. 
But Arthur Curry looked at it slightly differently. He received these orders. And his thought was that he'd been given a goal, something to do. He's ordered to seize this town, but that didn't necessarily mean that he had to lead a charge directly into the town just because he had to seize it. So he examined the strategic terrain and came to a different decision. He decided he was going to seize the high ground near the town and then use his artillery to drive the Germans out of it without directly putting troops into this difficult terrain. The high ground he chose to seize was a small hill known on the British military maps of the time as Hill 70. Okay, so a good play here by Arthur Curry. He has a strategy for attacking hills and ridges, and he finds a hill that he can attack to use that strategy. How does it go, David? Well, the first day of the Battle of Hill 70 goes very well. The Canadian forces rapidly overrun the hill using the artillery-heavy strategy that they'd first pioneered at Vimy Ridge. And the... German defensive strategy, a defense in depth, a very modern defensive strategy by First World War standards, does have a weakness as regards holding specific hilly terrain that the Canadians were exploiting here. And they seized the hill and began the second part of the plan, trying to use their artillery to drive the Germans out of the town of Lens that's when things started to get more difficult. And why is that, David? Well, essentially, the Germans refused to retreat. The Canadian artillery was pouring fire into the town from the high ground, just as the plan had called for. But instead of retreating, the Germans were just digging in more. So it looked like seizing the hill hadn't achieved the objective that the Canadians had hoped that it would. Wow, sounds like the Germans were really being tough there. I mean, they're getting bombarded by artillery, but they're just going to dig in and huddle down. Do the Canadians now have to attack the town? Well, the Canadians certainly aren't willing to just give up because the first effort didn't achieve every element of the objectives they set for it. So they do attack the town. And how does that go? Are they able to use their strategy that they've successfully employed at Vimy Ridge and now at Hill 70? Well, the attack into Lens is notably less successful than either of the two previous attacks, Vimy Ridge and Hill 70. The big thing is that the Canadians did not know, but soon find out, that the Germans have actually created an elaborate network of tunnels underneath the town to let them move around entirely below ground and safe from the Canadians' advantage in artillery. So that's how they were able to avoid the artillery from Hill 70 and not have to give up the town. Exactly. Very tricky. This is when Philip Conowal enters our story in person. And at this time, Philip Conowal is in the army. Is he just a private? He's just a lance corporal, actually, at this time. And he leads a charge the first day of the attack into the town. He actually 
charges on his own without orders and seizes a German position. For the next three days, he will be heroic and be everywhere. He personally overran two separate machine gun positions and destroyed both of them. He seized cellars, he seized houses in bitter house-to-house fighting in the ruins of the city of Lens. Philip Conowal amazes the soldiers who see him fighting. So this isn't just ordinary Lance Corporal stuff. This is really above and beyond, David. This is so amazing that his commanding officer puts him in for the Victoria Cross, and he wins it. Unfortunately, he only hears about that in hospital because on the fourth day of the battle in the city of Lens, he gets shot by a German sniper, hit in the head, and survives, grievously wounded. Wow. So this Lance Corporal personally leads charges on his own, overruns machine guns, and acts with just such general valor that he earns the Victoria Cross and then barely survives a sniper shot to the head? And then he's recovering in hospital. He gets awarded the Victoria Cross. He gets promoted to sergeant. And they give him a non-combat posting because he's still recovering from his wounds. It's actually with the Russian embassy in London because he speaks Russian because that's where he was initially from. But amazingly, he volunteers again for active service at the end of the war. The war ends before he goes back into the front line, but he actually deploys briefly to Siberia as part of Canada's little-known intervention in the Russian Civil War, which a demonstration of how committed he was as a soldier. So he could have just played out the rest of the war and the rest of his time in the army somewhere nice and safe like the Russian embassy in London but he actually volunteers to go back to the front lines for the country that he'd adopted only a few years before exactly and how does he end up as the janitor in the House of Commons in 1936 well this is something of a sad story Neil he comes back to Canada after his time in Omsk in Siberia, and he moves to Ottawa. He's returning to a country that he has not lived in for very long, and Ottawa, the capital, seems like a good city to build a fresh start. And then, in 1921, he and a friend from his army days, both of them Ukrainian, go across the river to what was then Hull, now modern Gatineau, Quebec. They want to buy a bicycle. Okay, so they're out to buy a bicycle just across the river. So there's a bar owner in Gatineau who reportedly wants to sell a bicycle, which is why they've gone there. Now, this bar owner is Austrian, of Austrian descent. And he's also been in Canada for the entire war. He is not a veteran. When they arrive, there's some harsh words apparently said but everything gets smoothed over initially and the friend who wants to buy a bicycle and the bar owner who is selling a bicycle go to actually inspect the merchandise something happens 
we may never know what, but the fight that had gotten started and smoothed over restarts, and Philip Connewall, who was in the other room when the fight had initially turned to actual blows, rushes in, finds that the bar owner has gone for a knife and has grabbed a knife, and he grabs the bar owner and using his skills in hand-to-hand combat from his extensive military experience, he kills him. Wow, he's certainly not the kind of person you want to pick a bar fight with with his extensive experience, and that didn't end well for that bartender. Former Russian Army hand-to-hand combat instructor and Canadian Army VC winner in a close-quarters urban battle. This is not a guy you want to have a bar fight with. So after this, the police arrive. Of course, they've been summoned. Philip Connell remained at the scene. When the police officer took him into custody, he said, I killed 52 of the bastards in the war. This is the 53rd. Certainly he had no love for the Austrians, although he was close to being born in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. No, he certainly did not. And that's a really badass line to say to the cop when you get arrested. I suppose it is. It's not actually a great thing to say to a cop as legal advice to our listeners. I would like to say, do not say, I killed 52 of the bastards. This is the 53rd. Yeah, your defense lawyer probably would not want you to say that. But I mean, real cool if you do. So the Ukrainian-Canadian community and... The First World War veterans both rally around him. There's a lot of sympathy for what he's gone through and what happened to him. And there's a lot of money raised for his legal defense. But ultimately, this is not a case that some bold lawyer is going to win. But it's also not a case that lawyers should be sorting out. His defense attorney makes the argument that due to his significant head wound and trauma from serving on the front lines of the First World War, he should not be held criminally responsible for his actions by reason of insanity. And the courts agree. Okay, so is there a punishment meted out or does he uh, go for some sort of rehabilitation? Well, the result is that he is sent to a psychiatric hospital with the intention of rehabilitation. And... It's actually something of a success story. He's in the hospital for seven years, but in 1928, he's released. And by all accounts, he's significantly improved from his initial days in hospital with traumatic nightmares and flashbacks that we would call PTSD today. Certainly, that's not something you can ever cure, but he's definitely not in as bad of a place as he was before he went into the hospital. Unfortunately, the country is just on the cusp of the Great Depression, so Philip Conowell may not be in as bad a place in his psychological health, but in terms of searching for a job, coming out of a psychiatric hospital in 1928, late 1928, is not the best possible circumstance. Right, even for a heroic World War I veteran, I'm sure there weren't many jobs available. No, indeed, and Philip Conowall, of course, goes looking for them, 
has difficulty finding one, but he's lucky. Lucky-ish. Another recipient of the Victoria Cross is serving as the Sergeant-at-Arms of the Canadian House of Commons. His name is Major Milton Fowler Gregg. And when he hears that Philip Conowal is out of hospital and looking for a job, he offers him what initially is intended as a temporary job as a janitor in the House of Commons. Right, so this brings us to November 11th, 1936. Exactly. The temporary job is now stretched on for a few more years than intended. But essentially, yes, now it's November 11th, 1936, and William Lyon Mackenzie King is finding out that one of his janitors won the Victoria Cross in action. And what is Prime Minister King's reaction? Prime Minister King immediately decides that Mr. Conowal is getting a promotion. So he asks the staff at the House of Commons to see if they can find some kind of promotion that they can make available. And there is one. It's still on the custodial staff, but the keeper of the prime minister's office is a significantly more responsible position because obviously classified documents are kept there and you need to be responsible to work there and that means it comes with an increase in pay. So Philip Conowal is promoted to be the keeper of the prime minister's office and he'll keep that job for well over two decades till 1956. It must have been quite the shock to the prime minister to see a Victoria Cross on the chest of one of his janitors. It's not something you expect but apparently in 1942 when the Second World War was raging, the House of Commons held a debate on the question of medals and the awards for combat valor. And they actually had Philip Conowal summoned to contribute, still in his janitorial uniform, his opinions because he'd won one and therefore had more relevant experience than anyone else in the building. What an amazing story, David, of a real Canadian hero, a Ukrainian hero, a guy who volunteered to serve a country he barely lived in and served it with valor and honor really beyond anything that you could ask. It's amazing. The stories of sacrifice of the two world wars always amaze me. Just one of so many veterans to keep in mind this November 11th as that's just a few days away. Thanks for telling us the story, David. Always happy to, Neil. Now we always like to end these podcasts with a little game, something fun that we can play along with. So I've got a quiz for you here, David, and this one's a little uh, sillier than normal, a little bit of fun. Sometimes it happens in history that two people have the same name. So for this quiz, we're talking about people who have the same name and I'm going to tell you the biography of somebody but really it's the biography of two people and we're going to see if you can figure out who that person or two people are think you understand I know it's a bit complicated all right let's try it out all right our first one here's the biography this English philosopher and statesman known for inventing the scientific method also was an expressionist painter. So the also is what separates these biographies, David, after the also is the second person. 
Think you can figure this out? An English philosopher and statesman known for inventing the scientific method. Also an expressionist painter. So perhaps I'll guess on people known as the father of the scientific method. Perhaps I should say Sir Francis Bacon, Neil. You're right. Sir Francis Bacon, who was born in 1561, was an English philosopher, statesman, and scientist. And Francis Bacon, who was born in 1909 in Ireland, was a British expressionist painter. All right. Next one here, David. This wife of William Shakespeare also played Meryl Streep's assistant in The Devil Wears Prada. Neither of these are people I know. You're not familiar with The Devil Wears Prada, David? I am searching my memory for who it was who played opposite Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada right now. Great movie. Absolutely certain it was. The two people we're looking for are Anne Hathaway. The Anne Hathaway born in 1555 was married to William Shakespeare for 34 years. The Anne Hathaway born in 1982 is a Hollywood actress be a little bit strange if the Anne Hathaway born in the 1500s was the Hollywood actress. All right, this singer-songwriter also represented Illinois in Congress from 1975 to 1997 and ran for president in 1988. Singer-songwriter who also ran for president. I should mention unsuccessfully ran for the presidential nomination. Ran for the presidential nomination, okay. Well, I'm just guessing. Perhaps Paul Simon? You're right. Paul Simon, born in 1941, was a member of the duo Simon and Garfunkel. However, Paul Simon, born in 1928, was a representative who ran for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1988. All right, David, another one for you here. This major figure in the Irish independence movement also piloted Apollo 11 to the moon. Irish independence movement from a limited number. Can't think of any Neil Armstrongs or Buzz Aldrins in the Irish independence movement, so I'll guess Michael Collins. You're right. The process of elimination there. How many people were on board Apollo 11? Uh, And yeah, Michael Collins, born in 1930, piloted Apollo 11 to the moon and back. But the Michael Collins, who was born in 1890, was a major figure in the Irish independence movement. Last one for you, David. Here's the biography. This drummer for the British rock band Queen was also the drummer for the British pop band Duran Duran. It's amazing to see the coincidences through history. It is. It is amazing to see. Members of Queen... Not Freddie Mercury. The drummer was actually Roger Taylor. Born 1949 was the Roger Taylor who was the drummer for the rock band Queen. Roger Taylor, born in 1960, became the drummer for the British pop band Duran Duran. So that's a little bit of biography coincidences through history. A few fun ones in there and some you might have known, might not have known. Thanks for playing along, David. Always happy to. And thanks for listening. Our podcast can be found online wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And you can reach us at our website, obrother.ca, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at whenartthou. And if you want to send us an email, obrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs>